Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za It was a privilege to be here once again. And this morning in this message, I will be giving some exhortations to single men and women. And if you are here and you are married, really all of these exhortations can be applied to you as a married man or woman. By way of introduction, singleness, being unmarried, is not a matter of sin. I'm confident you all know this, but I want to reiterate that singleness is not a matter of sin. And yet at times, single Christian men and women can feel or be made to feel by others that they are somehow second-class citizens in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not true. You are not second-class citizens. You should not feel that way or be made to feel that way. Yes, it is true that at creation, God stated plainly that it's not good for the man to be alone. And God made a helper for the man, a woman. Marriage is a creation ordinance established by God at the very beginning. But the fall of man into sin has affected everything in this world, including the ordinance of marriage. And consequently, there are men and women in this life who do not get married. Not getting married, again, is not a matter of sin, but because of sin, there is this reality that there are men and women who do not get married. Some of the most notable individuals in biblical history were unmarried. Daniel, from the Old Testament, there is no record of him ever being married, and I personally don't believe he was married. John the Baptist was not married. The Apostle Paul was not married. And perhaps Apollos, in the book of Acts, was also not married. We don't know for sure. And then there's the example of Anna in the book of Luke. We're told that she got married from very young age. She was married from her virginity. She was married for seven years and then became a widow. And we're told that she ministered as a widow in the temple for 84 years. So the majority of her life, she was an unmarried woman. So what do the scriptures teach us regarding the unmarried state? Well, a lot of things, and we can't turn to all of those passages. But now I would like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In this letter, 
the Apostle Paul was responding to various questions and concerns which the Christians in the church in Corinth, Greece, had raised in another letter which they had sent to the Apostle Paul. Notice this from the opening words of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Paul wrote, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote. So he was responding to various questions from the brethren in the church in Corinth. And in chapter 7, Paul addressed several matters related to the states of singleness, marriage, widowhood, and sexual purity. And although there will be things that I state in this message, as I already said, which are applicable to married men and women, the focus in this message will be upon the unmarried single man and single woman. So follow in your Bibles now as I read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 2. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of fornications, let each woman, excuse me, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. And then drop down to verse 9. But if they have not continency or self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So that's our passage at this point in time. Notice, first of all, single men and women must preserve sexual purity and modesty. These are exhortations to single men and women. You must preserve sexual purity and modesty. Now, there are some Bibles which translate verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 7 as follows. Now, concerning the things whereof you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The NIV and the ESV translate verse 1 that way. However, the correct translation of the Greek is, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Not to touch a woman. It actually doesn't say you should not have sexual relations. It says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, what did Paul mean by this statement? Paul did not mean by these words that a man cannot shake the hand of a woman or hold the hand of an older woman in order to help her carefully walk down some stairs. There are some cultures where it is appropriate for men to give a holy kiss on the cheek of a woman, showing modest respect and affection for that woman. Paul no doubt understood all of this. Clearly, Paul wanted the Corinthian single men and women to understand that inappropriate, immodest, sexually arousing touching of a woman by a man is wrong and sinful. And by inference, it is also wrong and sinful for a single woman to touch a man inappropriately, immodestly, or in a sexually arousing manner. In our sexually charged and sexually soaked cultures, it is all the more vital that single Christian men and women 
prayerfully and diligently preserve their sexual purity. Now I understand, of course, that sexual purity begins in the heart, and you need to understand that as well. Sexual purity, of course, must be in the body, but it begins in the heart. It must also manifest itself in all of your behavior as a Christian, including the way you relate physically to the opposite sex. Inappropriate physical touching can be arousing and stirring, stirring up sexual lust, and when once aroused, such lusts are powerful and are not always easily controlled or abated, calmed down. In the history recorded in Genesis, it is clear that Joseph, and I hope you're familiar with that history of Joseph in the book of Genesis, it's clear that Joseph understood these powerful realities while working as a slave in the household of his master in Egypt, Potiphar. And if you know that history, you know that Potiphar, his wife, she was continually tempting Joseph sexually, sinfully. And hence, when Potiphar's wife eventually grabbed hold of Joseph, Joseph did not stand and reason with her with words as he did on other occasions when she simply tempted him with her words. He rejected her temptation she gave to him verbally with words. But now on this occasion, she grabs hold of Joseph and says, lie with me have sexual relations with me. And what did Joseph do? He didn't reason with her with words. She's touching him, you see, inappropriately, sexually. So what did he do? He wrestled his arms and his body out of his outer cloak, leaving that cloak in her hands, and he fled out of the house to spiritual and sexual safety. And if you know the history, you know that through that incident, he ends up being cast into a prison. And they were not the kinds of prisons that are very nice found in Western societies or probably here in South Africa in this day. But he was more concerned with honoring God. Joseph was more concerned with pleasing his God and Savior and maintaining sexual purity than he was with the consequences of what would happen when he ran away from Potiphar's wife. And you men, you must not allow yourselves to be tempted by women in any such situation, and women, you should not allow yourself to be tempted by men. King David, in the history of the Bible, ignored this vital principle when he called for Bathsheba to come into his palace. Now, the problems with King David, his sexual sins of his heart and mind, began before he called Bathsheba to come into his palace. But when he had her come into her palace, he talked with her, but then, of course, he touched her, and then, of course, he ended up sinning by committing adultery with Bathsheba. How very, very foolish David was. How sinful he was. And you read the history, and that sinful sexual adultery 
resulted in all sorts of very sad, tragic problems in David's life and in the kingdom. So learn here, sexual sin, whether you're married or not married, but speaking to you unmarried men and women, sexual sin is never, never a private matter. This is a lie of the devil. A man, a woman thinks they can come together unmarried, commit sexual sin, fornication. It's in private, it's in secret, it's in the dark, and they think it's a private matter. But God sees it, and it is never private, and it always has consequences and ramifications. We see that in David's life. Paul reiterated this fundamental principle when he wrote to young Timothy, a pastor. And we don't know if Timothy was married or not when Paul wrote this to him. In 2 Timothy 2, in verse 22, you may wish to turn there. 2 Timothy 2, in verse 22. Flee youthful lusts. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see the very simple instructions Paul gave to Timothy as a young man. Flee youthful lust. This is what you as single men and single women must do on certain occasions. If you know this is going to be a situation of temptation, don't stay there but leave. If that's at all possible, flee youthful lusts. To preserve sexual purity, to not purposefully or inadvertently entice someone of the opposite sex to touch you inappropriately, single men and women must think and speak and act and dress modestly. And so my first main point here for you, under my first heading here, is you must preserve Pure and modest thinking. Pure and modest thinking. Turn to Mark chapter 7 and verse 18. Mark chapter 7 and verse 18. Jesus is speaking in this portion of God's word. And he said unto them, Are you so without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatsoever from without goes into the man, it cannot defile him, because it goes not into his heart, but into his belly, and goes out into the draft? This he said, making all meats clean. And he said, that which proceeds out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, evil thoughts proceed. Fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, etc. We stop our reading of God's word. You see, evil thoughts proceed out of the heart, fornications and adulteries. And in the Bible, the heart is the seat of man's thinking. That's his thoughts, his will, and his affections. 
And the Lord Jesus stated very clearly that evil thoughts, including sexual immoralities and adulteries, all begin and come forth from the heart, from the very mind of a man or a woman. And if you would be kept sexually pure in your body, you must begin by keeping yourself sexually pure in your thinking. You must begin there. And if you would maintain purity in your thinking, then you must labor to keep your eyes from looking upon that which is sexually impure or enticing. It is for good reason that the Apostle Peter spoke of eyes full of adultery in 2 Peter chapter 2. The eyes, the sins of sexual temptation begin with the eyes, go to the mind, down to the heart, to the will, etc. So therefore, men and women, you should be very, very guarded and careful what you watch on your computer screens, from the internet, on social media, etc. But secondly, you must not only preserve pure and modest thinking, you must preserve pure and modest speech. In the early chapters of the book of Proverbs, Solomon instructed his son regarding sins of sexual immorality. And of course, these truths and principles apply not just to sons, but to daughters, to men, to women. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 16. Proverbs 2, verse 16. In this verse, we read of a woman who flatters with her words. Proverbs 2.16, to deliver you from the strange woman, even from the foreigner that flatters with her words. You see, impure and immodest women will use flattery in order to entice unthinking men into sexual sin. Men can also, and indeed do, flatter with words in order to entice a woman to sin sexually. And in addition to flattery, women can use other forms of sinful speech. Turn to Proverbs 5 and verse 3. Proverbs 5, verse 3, we read, For the lips of a strange woman drop honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. Women and men can use sweet and smooth words in order to charm the opposite sex, to let down their guard, and to be drawn into sexually compromising situations. Now, I understand, I'm a married man, I understand when I was courting my wife, who was not my wife at that time, of course I wanted to say nice things to her. I did not want to flatter her. Flattery is like throwing a net around somebody's feet so that they step into it, get snagged, and fall to the ground. I didn't flatter her. But of course I wanted to speak nice words to her. So I'm not saying you can't say, that's a very pretty dress you're wearing today, if you truly, sincerely mean it. 
But you're not to use your words in order to entice someone, in order to cause them to let down their guard, to protect their own heart. Single men and women must remember these warnings from Solomon found throughout Proverbs, as well as the instruction of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.29, where Paul wrote these words, Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth, but such as is good for edifying as the need may be, that it may give grace to them that hear. Men, before you speak to the woman that you're interested in, you should be asking yourself the question, before you speak, are these words that are good words? Are these words that will edify her? Are these words that will give grace to her? Those are questions to ask before you speak. But thirdly, you must preserve pure and modest actions. So your thinking, your speech, and your actions. Turn to Proverbs 6 and verse 25. Proverbs 6 and verse 25. Here we read of the sinful actions of the eyelids. Proverbs 6, 25. Lust not after her beauty in your heart, neither let her take you with her eyelids. It is not for nothing that we speak of the flirtatious eyes of a woman. Such actions are not pure and modest, but seek to gain the attention and affections of the man. And again, it is true that men can use their eyes and eyelids and flirt with women. And such immodest behavior on the part of a man is never needed in order to gain the favor of a godly woman. So what I'm saying by this portion of Proverbs 6.25 is you men and women need to be conscious of how you use your eyes, your eyelids, your whole body when you're interacting with those of the opposite sex. Turn now to Proverbs 7 and verse 6. Proverbs 7 and verse 6. For at the window of my house I looked forth through my lattice, and I beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths, a young man, void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way to her house, in the twilight, in the evening of the day, in the middle of the night and in the darkness, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and wily of heart. She is clamorous and willful. Her feet do not abide in her house. Now she is in the streets, now in the broad places, and lies in wait at every corner. And there we stop our reading. So you must preserve pure and modest actions in your life. So the young man in this passage deliberately went to the street where he knew that he would find the house of a harlot in the evening of the night. 
He didn't do it in the morning. He didn't do it midday. He did it at night. He knew where the house of the harlot was. And he then took steps, he took action, and he went deliberately to that street where her house was. The woman, she is described as a harlot, that's true in this passage. But you do not need to be a harlot in order to behave in the way in which she behaved, in a way that is immodest. We're told that this woman was clamorous and willful, and she did not stay in her home by night. In other words, in her behavior, she was loud. She was very boisterous, self-willed. She was determined to get what she wanted, which was sinful sexual pleasures with a willing man. Instead of impure and immodest behavior and actions, the scriptures entrust instruct men and women, whether married or single, to live holy lives that are exemplary and which can be seen by others. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Peter's instructions here are for wives, and I understand that, but the principles apply to unmarried women. 1 Peter 3 and verse 1. In like manner, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that even if any do not obey the word, they may, without the word, be gained by the behavior of their wives, beholding your chaste behavior coupled with fear. And there we stop the reading. You see, the instruction given by Peter to married women, which applies to you as unmarried women, the instructions here were that the behavior of women is to be holy behavior, chaste behavior, clean, innocent, modest, pure behavior, which of course does include the way you speak, but I'm talking about the way you act, the way you respond in social settings, whether it's church after the morning worship service, or whether it's on some other church activity, or whether it's in the home of people from the church for a dinner, it doesn't matter what the situation may be. You are to be pure and modest in your behavior. Turn to Titus chapter 2 and verse 6. Titus chapter 2 and verse 6. The younger men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself an example of good works. So Paul was writing to the young man Titus, a young pastor, and through uh, to Titus, he was telling him that he, Titus, was to exhort the young men in his congregation to be sober-minded, instructing them how to think, but in all things, Titus was to be an example to them in his behavior of showing good works in his behavior, so the young men were to follow him in their behavior, having good works. 
Fourthly, you must preserve pure and modest clothing. Turn to Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 10. Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 10. There we have already read about the attire of a harlot. I should not need to describe immodest and provocative clothing that a harlot would wear to any of you here this morning. I don't intend to do that. But you should all already have it in your mind in a pure and modest way that the clothing that a harlot wears is indeed sinful, immodest clothing that is meant to entice into sin. But to the single women living uh, here before me, living in this world before me, you need to evaluate your clothing which you wear. You should stand in front of a mirror You've got your clothing on that you're planning to wear, going outside, whether it's going to church or going to university or going to meet friends at a restaurant, whatever it may be. Before you leave your room, you should stand before a mirror, if possible, a full-length mirror. If not, a large mirror. You should stand before that mirror and evaluate your clothing. Is your clothing truly modest? Is the clothing which you ladies are wearing, is it too form-fitting, so snug on your body that when you walk outside, any man, whether a Christian or not, can look at you and can see the shape the physiology of your body because your clothing is so tight, so form-fitting. Now you might, as a young woman, say, well, that's that man's problem. He shouldn't be lusting with his eyes, his mind, his heart. That's his problem. Well, that's true in one way, but it's a lie when you think it's only his problem. You are responsible Ladies, to make sure you wear clothing that is modest, that would be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it's too tight and too form-fitting, maybe you should not be wearing it. Or is it too loose and low-cut in the area of your breasts? Too revealing. You may not, as a woman, be sexually enticed by seeing a a man's chest. You may be sexually enticed by seeing a man's chest, but maybe not. Reality is, the way God has made men, God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of sin. But men are easily enticed by what they see. And then their minds can go down a sinful track very quickly. And that's sin, that's wrong. But you ladies must not wear clothing that is too low cut or too revealing or too short. The dresses or skirts are too short. 
you need to evaluate this. You need to wear modest clothing. Your clothing does not need to be ugly. I'm not saying that. But it must be modest and project purity and modesty and godliness. That's what it should do. In 1 Peter 3, verse 3, we read that the godly woman will not focus on the outward adorning of braiding the hair and of wearing jewels of gold or of putting on apparel, but the godly woman will focus on the cultivation of her heart so that she is clothed with humility and holiness. Peter was not stating that Christian women can never braid their hair or wear jewelry or wear pretty clothing. He wasn't stating that. But he was saying, what is your focus? You should be more concerned upon what your heart is like than what your outward clothing is like. But of course, your outward clothing must be modest. But turn now to Psalm 45 and verse 13. Psalm 45 and verse 13. I want you to see from this passage that a woman can wear clothing that is beautiful clothing. Psalm 45, verse 13. The king's daughter within the palace is all glorious. Her clothing is inwrought with gold. She shall be led unto the king in embroidered work. And there we stop the reading. You see with those two verses, it's not wrong for a godly woman to have clothing that is really beautiful, but it should be modest. Again, by way of analogy, Christian men must wear clothing that is modest. The man's focus, as with the woman, must be that he is clothed in his heart with humility and holiness. So men, you should not be wearing clothing that is too tight either or that is in some way revealing to the opposite sex realities about your own body. You need to dress in clothing that is modest, that is not sexually enticing. So we have seen single men and women must preserve sexual purity and modesty in these different ways. But now, secondly, my second main heading, single men and women may need to marry. Look again at 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 9. But if they have not continency, that's what my Bible says. It's a big word that we don't typically use. It means self-control, self-restraint, but if they have not self-control, self-restraint, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. The Apostle Paul was a realist. He charges unmarried men and women to evaluate themselves soberly regarding their own personal sexual desires. And remember, having sexual desires is not in itself at all sinful. 
because God is the one who has created us as men and women and given us sexual desires, but they are to be used in God's way, according to God's word. And so Paul was a realist, and he says, men and women who are not married need to evaluate themselves soberly about their sexual desires. That Paul is speaking to both unmarried men and women can be seen by looking at verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 7, where he addresses both the unmarried and widows. He's not just speaking to men, he's speaking to men and women. And so I ask the question of you this morning, can you maintain, can you even strengthen sexual purity in your heart and life as an unmarried man, an unmarried woman? Can you do that? Can you maintain and even strengthen sexual purity? If so, you don't need to be worried that you're still unmarried. You can still pray to be married, but that is a blessing from God. But now you should ask yourself this question, are my legitimate God-given sexual desires such that I find myself often emotionally distracted by these unsatisfied desires? Am I constantly being distracted? Is this such a problem in my heart and life? I am maintaining sexual purity and modesty by the grace and power of God, by the power of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know and I believe Jesus Christ can and will keep me sexually pure in the inner man as well as outwardly and yet I am so often distracted I sense I really do need to be married. It is true from the Bible and in history that there are some like the Apostle Paul who made himself a eunuch that is someone who would basically not have sexual desires. He was a man, I'm sure he had those desires, but by the grace of God, he could keep them under control. And he did that for the sake of the gospel, spreading the gospel throughout the Roman world. Such individuals can, by God's gift, exercise self-restraint over their God-given sexual desires. But such individuals are not common. The Apostle Pauls of the world are not common. It's abundantly plain from the Bible that the satisfying of sexual desires must only take place within marriage, between one man and one woman, within the marriage covenant. And therefore, Paul writes to the Corinthians, instead of burning with passion, as a single man or a single woman, such individuals must prayerfully and practically seek to be married. But now my third heading this morning. Single men and women can serve the Lord with alacrity. I like that word alacrity, that's why I used it. Alacrity means eagerness, readiness, Unmarried men and women, you can serve, you should serve the Lord with such eagerness and readiness. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 32. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 32. 
but I would have you to be free from cares. He that is unmarried is careful for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married is careful for the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and is divided. So also the woman that is unmarried and the virgin is careful for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married is careful for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And there we stop our reading of God's word. In this passage, Paul is stating the obvious, but we know, I think you know, that the obvious, the obvious things in life can often be overlooked. Men and women who are married cannot possibly serve the Lord in an undistracted, undivided way. Husbands and wives have biblical responsibilities which the unmarried do not have. And if married men and women have children, they have additional biblical responsibilities which the unmarried man or woman does not have. Now, of course, Paul does not mean here that married men and women are less spiritually minded than single men and single women when he states that the married are careful for the things of the world. Paul simply means that married men and women must care for the earthly needs of their spouse. And in stating these realities, Paul was not speaking negatively about marriage. He was simply stating obvious facts. By contrast, the unmarried have extra time and therefore extra opportunities so that they may be careful for the things of the Lord, how they may please the Lord and serve the Lord both in body and in spirit. Single men and women should not bemoan their unmarried state. I think that happens more, believe it or not, with single men than women. I know single women, godly women in my church who desire to be married, but they don't go around kind of moaning about it. It tends to be, in my experience, the single men. Oh, I'm not married yet. I'm not married. Oh, you know, they just kind of moan. Well, that's not what you should be doing. You have extra time in your life. You should seize the opportunities that you have now while you are unmarried, both men and women, which God in his providence places before you. You should use the gifts and talents that God has given you for the good of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the good of sinners, for the good of the church. And if you're not sure what your gifts and talents may be, you should ask your mature friends. You should ask your pastor. You should ask them, what do they think your gifts, your skills are? And then pray and ask the Lord 
to help you to use your gifts and your talents for his glory and for the good of Christians, the good of the kingdom of God, the good of sinners as well. Ask the Lord to help you to take the initiative to stretch you spiritually and practically, to go out of your own world. Christian men and women who are not married at times can be very self-focused. I'm not saying you shouldn't think about yourself and your needs, your desire to be married, but instead of bemoaning the fact that you're not married, instead of focusing on your own life, ask God to help you to look around you and see how you can serve others. It's called self-denial. Take the initiative. Stretch yourself spiritually and practically. Ask the Lord to help you to be fruitful in the life of the church and in the world. And what are some suggestions as to what you, the unmarried, may do for the good of the kingdom of Christ, as well as for sinners? So whether you're a young unmarried man or woman or an older unmarried man or woman, you can greet and speak to members of the church as they come into the church on Sunday or after the church service, you can greet and speak to visitors who are coming into the church for the first time. And when you greet them, be warm and sincere. And when you speak to them, also listen to them. You know, sinners who come into the church should know that the church is very warm and welcoming and inviting. And they should interact with Christians and come away with a sense, these people are very sincere. When that man, an unmarried man I'm saying, that woman, an unmarried woman, the visitor may not know you're unmarried, but you unmarried man or woman, you greet the visitor, they should sense that you are different from the world, that you are sincere, and you listen to them when they speak. You can encourage one another in the local church by speaking about what you are learning from your own Bible reading, as well as what you are learning from the preaching of the Word of God in the church services, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. You can ask the deacons in the church what you might do to help maintain the church building. You can ask the deacons if there are widows or needy people in the church who need practical assistance. You see, you can do a lot of things with your time that the married man and married woman cannot do because they have other additional responsibilities. You unmarried men and women should speak to your pastors, perhaps about leading a Bible study. And I've gathered, I've heard that more than a few of you at Heritage Baptist Church are involved in Bible studies for men and for women. And that is really excellent. Use your time for such spiritual activities as well. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with family members who are lost, with friends, with neighbors, with work associates. Prayerfully seek to evangelize them. You young men, I don't know how this works in South Africa, but in America, 
There are young men, unmarried men, in our congregation. So they're Christians, they're not married. Young men, they organize playing basketball with teenagers who are not yet Christians from the church families on a Saturday morning. They organize getting a group of these guys together to play basketball, sometimes to play football. They do that to establish relationships with these unconverted teenagers in order to have a friendship and then to be able to speak the gospel to them. They hear the gospel from their parents. They hear the gospel in the church. But sometimes, maybe many times, that teenager hearing the gospel from somebody who's not a father, not a mother, not a pastor, not a deacon, not an older person in the church, but hearing it from somebody who's much younger, sometimes the Lord uses that to bring that gospel truth to that teenager. They're hearing it in church, the gospel. They're hearing the gospel at home. But they might hear and receive it from you. So as an unmarried man, you could do something like that. Unmarried women, ask some of the mothers in the church how you can help them in their home. That's assuming you have time, let's say, on a Saturday. You can ask the, the, the mother, the married woman with children, how can I help you in your home? What can I do? There are many ways you can serve the Lord by serving his people. You have more time in your lives as unmarried men and women. And ask the Lord to enable you to be content. Whether you're a man who's unmarried or a woman who's unmarried, ask the Lord to enable you to be content to glorify Jesus Christ in your heart and life, not only by being sexually pure and modest, but by being content in your heart. Contentment is a beautiful grace to see in a man or a woman who is unmarried. You want to be married? Keep praying. Take practical steps, but be content. God and God alone can give you the grace to live such a life in this sexually soaked culture in which we live. Now more could be said. I've alluded to some things. Watch what you do on your computer, on your smartphone. Guard your eyes and your heart. But above all, you must make sure you are maintaining fellowship with Jesus Christ, the Savior. You must make sure you are having communion with the Lord Jesus Christ every day in private Bible reading and in private prayer because it is the Lord Jesus Christ who will indeed keep you in this day and age. Well, let's close now in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would help the men and women in this very auditorium to guard their hearts above all that they guard. May they guard their hearts 
And we pray that you would also give them an increasing and deepening love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would make these men and women who are not married to be light and salt in this society. And we pray that while they're unmarried, they may serve you, the Lord, with eagerness, with joy, and may they also have contentment in their hearts and lives. We pray, Father, that you would provide godly spouses to each and every one of them. But if that is not your will, that they would indeed continue to be content and to trust in you with all of their hearts. We cry to you, our God, and ask that you would glorify yourself in the hearts and in the lives of all of these men and women. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ensure that that question gets uh, gets answered. This, Q, this first Q&A session is going to be centered around singleness and things around that. So, um, and, but all the, if perhaps you ask this question, you're a question now that's not around singleness, we will, uh, we will still, we'll answer it later at the end of the day and you can just find it online recorded if you perhaps will not be here by the end of the day. We will, tr we will endeavor to answer all the questions. Um, are related to to everything that you have um, that you have asked that you have asked here. So we have a number of questions here. So uh, I think we'll just get right into it. Uh, Pastor Smith, I think one, the first question that I'll ask, I'll just group them together. But the first question I'll ask: Somebody asked, you mentioned about resolving, uh, uh, have asking somebody for forgiveness when you've sinned against them. But somebody was asking about a sin that is committed in private. So the question specifically says, how does one confess their, confess their sins to their brother if it was a sin done privately? I imagine when they say, if it was a sin done privately, I imagine they're talking, I didn't sin against you directly. It was a sin. I, commit, I did something evil in private and now I want to confess it to a brother. 
uh, perhaps I watched something, I would imagine. The person didn't really elaborate, but I imagine I watched something I shouldn't have or I did something sinful in private. Now I want to bring it to another brother. How, how do I go about that? Well, before I address that, I would just say sometimes, of course, there are sins we commit that we know they're in our heart. And maybe you're interacting with another single brother or a woman with another single woman, Christians, and you realize you have jealousy or covetousness or some bitterness in your heart toward that brother, toward that sister. Well, you certainly have to confess that to God through Christ. And since it's an internal heart sin, I don't believe you're obligated to confess it to that brother or sister, that kind of sin. On the other hand, you may wish to do that. You may wish to say to that brother, a man with a man or a sister with a sister, you know, brother, I have to confess I have had the heart sin of bitterness. I've been bitter toward you. And let's suppose the brother says, I haven't sensed that at all. And you then say, well, I have sensed it in my own heart. I've been bitter toward you. I've been jealous. And you see, by confessing that sin to him, it's like what James says we should do. You confess your sins one to another, and then actually that breaks down that wall. That probably will destroy the bitterness that is there because you talk out, oh, why is that sin there? Maybe that brother has done something that really has bothered you and you didn't realize it. So you don't have to confess, but maybe you want to choose to confess in order to grow in grace. Now, if it's something with regards to, let's say, you as a man have viewed pornography on your smartphone. No one else knows it, but the Lord knows it. And okay, it's a, a private sin, a secret sin as it were. I think with sins like that, you're very wise to confess it to another brother whom you can trust or your pastor. Because you need accountability. You need someone who will not only pray for you concerning that kind of sin, but you need somebody who will keep you accountable and then help you. Because if you don't have something like Covenant Eyes software on your smartphone, you should have it. I have Covenant Eyes on my smartphone. I don't trust myself, you see. And my wife knows this. And Covenant Eyes sends an accountability report to someone. My wife gets it every week. But I, I just don't trust myself. So I think if it's a secret sin of that nature, I think it would be very wise to speak to a brother that is mature, Christian brother that is mature, that you can trust, that will help you and not excuse you, or your pastor who will help you and not excuse you. Because that particular sin of viewing pornography, it flourishes in the dark. It flourishes when it's hidden. And usually there is a lot of shame associated with that sin. So I don't know if the brother is referring to that particular sin, but there's shame associated with that. And there should be shame. But it's of such a nature that usually a Christian man, he, he wrestles. I think I'm a Christian. I believe I'm a Christian. But now I've sinned in this way and I've sinned in this way again and again. You need help. And you could say, well, I need God's help. Well, yes, you do need God's help and you need God's forgiveness. But again, in the Bible, we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both taught in the Bible very clearly. We don't just believe in God's sovereignty. We believe in man's responsibility. We believe in both. They're not enemies. 
And so part of your responsibility is to then speak to Pastor Lalo or, again, a mature Christian brother. And if you're married, your wife needs to understand these struggles. Yeah. Is that helpful? Yeah, I think that's good, brother. Um, we have, the questions are streaming in now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's, uh, maybe let's, let's do this other one real quick here. Maybe just one, this one, just a word or two on this one. You spoke on Ephesians 6, 1 to 4 last night. Um, how should one uh, understand, thank you, brother. How should one understand Ephesians 6, 1 from the perspective of an adult who has already left home? So obey, your, honor your parents. Right. Just a word or two on that. Uh, we have a number of questions. You know, last night I made this comment about Pastor Lalo being a man who talks a lot. <laughs> so he just said a word or two. Because <laughs> he knows I talk a lot. Um, it's a very good question. If the adult son or daughter is not yet married, because that's a different scenario, I have an adult son who is married. He's left father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Obviously, he doesn't live in my home. It's a very different situation. He's now established his own household. I do not interfere with that adult son. My adult son, as a Christian, he does call me and ask me a lot for advice. So when he asks for advice, I give it to him. So I, I have another adult son who's not married, but he doesn't live in my home. I don't give him advice either, unless he asks for it, because he doesn't live in my home. Now, he's also not a believer, as I've just said, so it's a little different. But I think that fathers should want to still do all they can prayerfully and verbally to help their adult children who are out of the home, but be mindful of the fact, though they're still your son or daughter, they're not living in your household, they're now mature adults, the situation has changed, practically speaking. You just need to be wise as to what you say or don't say, and encourage them to ask you. That way, if they ask you, you know you can speak. So perhaps sometimes baked into this case, this particular question is, so this question is from the perspective of an adult child who's left. Right. And sometimes some of the pressures from family, uh, family perhaps asking for, for help financially, mm. even sometimes, and sometimes uh, families can uh, require, uh, you know, a kind of a return. So, you know, I've, I've helped you, now return, and, uh, you know, even a monthly uh, dependence on this adult child who's left and trying to perhaps build a home or on their own. So the question is more so from the other perspective. Anything you can, uh, you can say with, with regards to that? So this is a cultural reality here in yes, South Africa. It is, it is. I also go to Pakistan because we have a, a missionary there and that's a cultural reality there too. If the parents are believers, I think you deal with them in one way. If they're unbelievers, it's different. But I think there's biblical instruction that is needed for the parents. So the parents are expecting the adult son or adult daughter who's left the home to provide financial support for them. Maybe the need is very legitimate. And in love, you give that financial support. But maybe it's not legitimate. Maybe the parents, the father and the mother, need some biblical instruction. Because the Bible teaches very clearly that it's not the children who lay up for the parents, but the parents lay up for the children financially. 
you should be seeking as parents to help those children get on their feet, as it were. Mm. I don't know if that yeah. helps. Yeah. Uh, I, I suppose with some of these questions, perhaps if you if there's a particular place you're scratching, you can come and uh, and, and ask in a more private setting. This one's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but I, I think it, I think it's good and it it, it touches on the roles of uh, men and women. It's re with regards to First Timothy two and verse uh, eleven and twelve. Uh, sorry, my uh, I'm gonna just stop accepting uh, accepting questions here because it keeps moving. Um, um, so where is this? I've lost it. There it is. This person says, I have a question on 1 Timothy 2 verse 12. How should we view the application of the scripture on women not to assert the authority of a man through, a, for example, teaching in our modern society? Is this instruction limited to the context of, a, of a corporate or family worship or is it generic and applicable to corporate workspace? How and why is it acceptable for women to teach men in e.g. in education sector such as university and corporate space and why is this not considered as women having authority over men? Furthermore, how should we as men learn to balance and accept to be taught or to be submissive to women in corporate spaces that occupy offices of authority and not be willing to accept being taught in our own households? And how should we as Christian women learn and accept to teach men in corporate spaces or education sector at the same time and avoid the temptation of driving the same corporate authority we have in our workspaces over our husband and family, etc. at home. So I think to synthesize, <laughs> like I said, it was a mouthful. I think whoever this person is, they're trying to get a theology degree somewhere. Um, but I think that the concept is first to meet the context of right. first to meet. Twelve yeah. within the church and family. Yeah. The context there in 1 Timothy, when you read through 1 Timothy, and I don't have my Bible in front of me and I don't have one on the phone, but Paul does say explicitly that he's writing to Timothy, the young pastor, that he may know how men are to behave in the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. So the letter was written to a pastor telling him, this is how life is to be conducted within the local church. So first of all, clearly, a woman should not be a teacher or a preacher or an evangelist in the church over adult men. And I think that's another crucial issue. To have a godly Christian woman in the local church teaching young children, that, that I don't see that as a violation of this teaching in 1 Timothy. But it is a violation if the woman is a teacher, preacher of an adult Bible class in the church. And I personally don't, I don't know how it's done here, I'm just telling you what I think. Um, in the university, I would not be comfortable, it's not the church now, but I would not be comfortable with an adult woman teaching adult men in a Bible study. I would not be comfortable with that. An adult woman teaching adult women in a Bible study in the university, that's fine. Adult man teaching other men or men and women in a Bible study in the university, that's fine. So the university is not the church, I understand that. But I just think we need to not get our roles as men and women uh, blurred, confused. They're already confused and blurred and even destroyed in society at large. Yeah. But then when you go to the corporate world, you've got a whole bunch of challenging situations. And of course, part of the problem is, you know, these women that are in these corporate settings 
let's assume they're unconverted women. Uh, maybe they're married. And they really ought to be in their home, not in the corporate world, but they are in the corporate world. So, I mean, there are a lot of challenges there. I don't deny that. But First Timothy is dealing with life in the local church. So whoever this person is, after this session, you can track down Pastor Lalo and he'll answer all those other questions. Now, I mean, I would be willing to discuss further myself. Yeah. Yeah, there are lots of ethical, there are ethical issues. There, there, uh, we call it ethical casuistry. How to apply principles from the Word of God to these various situations. It's not always as black and white as we would like things to be. There are nuances and wisdom is needed. Because, of course, we, we do have a, a number even of, uh, of, our, of our own ladies, godly women, who are in the corporate setting, um, and they're trying to exist there in a, in a godly way. And so we, we want to counsel them as well to... I think the question was more so how if, if I'm a godly woman um, and I have a position of authority at, at work, uh, by God's grace in that fashion, then I want to also make sure that I don't take that home or take that... Um, or want to take that in the church, right. which is what I'm, I was understanding the question to say. Right, okay. Yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, okay, now let's go to the bulk of the question. So those were the, 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 the uh, I would say the theological questions. These are really practical now about finding someone to marry. These, the, a lot of these questions are about that. Now, here's one question, and this person said, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> 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 I know who you are. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, it says, to what extent can a single man pursue a woman whilst studying? Um, studying, I imagine this is at university. What must be done differently in that process if I'm, perhaps I'm studying and the woman I'm pursuing is studying, or maybe I'm not studying, the woman I'm pursuing is studying, all those kinds of permutations. And I can tell you for free now, Pastor Smith, we have a number of those permutations here. Um, can it be done in a goodly, can it be done in a godly manner, assuming that financial stability is imminent for that man? Um, what must be done differently in that process? And, and generally degrees here can be three or four years. Um, and so perhaps you can think if some, what would you say to these people? They want to date each other, but they're in their first year of studying, uh, second year of studying. Maybe they've got two or three more years. Is there any kind of uh, wisdom you'd give around those kinds of issues? Well, this is where James' words in, in the letter that James wrote is, you know, very relevant. You know, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give it liberally and without scolding. So I think you should start there by asking God for wisdom in that particular situation. And then, of course, wisdom comes from reading the Word of God. Wisdom comes through prayer. Wisdom comes from speaking to a pastor, speaking to other mature men and women. So that's a starting point. And then I would say also that it is not in my judgment. It is a judgment. I don't believe it is wise to have long courtships. I don't believe it's wise to have long engagements. If, if I hear that this man and woman are going to now be engaged, let's say they've been, we use in America the term courting, dating, in a godly way, not a worldly way. So I'll use those terms. 
if a man and a woman are courting and dating and now this is going on to like one year, I mean, I would be concerned about that. It either should lead to engagement or you should stop dating. But because it's just not wise, because you're placing yourself in the realm of sexual temptations. Because if your affections for one another are growing and increasing, deepening, and you know, you're in love, truly in love, you know, those temptations sexually increase and become stronger. So a long courtship, a long dating period is not wise. A long engagement is not wise. There can be exceptions to that general rule. So now concerning the whole matter of your university studies, if you're in a three-year program or four-year program and you're now dating and you're in your first year of university studies, and that woman is in her first year of university studies or whatever, to me, this is, this is not probably wise. That's what I would just generally say. Because are you gonna date and court and be engaged for three years or four years? It's just not wise. The Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Larger Catechism, or Shorter Catechism, I don't remember if it's in the Larger or Shorter Catechism, it says that a violation of the commandment you shall not commit adultery is having long engagements. So the Puritans saw this as a problem because they understood their Bibles, understood humanity. First Corinthians 7, First Corinthians 7 alludes to that as well. Yeah. Do not act improperly towards your betrothed. Right. But at the same time, if you know you can be financially stable, and I think men should be thinking, I want to support my wife so that she does not have to work outside the home. And notice how I said that, so that she doesn't have to work outside the home. My wife is one of the hardest workers I know, and she doesn't work in corporate America. I, I think in America, people say, oh, well, she's just, she's just at home. She's just a housewife. She's just a mother. Like this is somehow second class, and she's not really working. But the lady who's in the corporate world, she's really working. That's, I don't like that. I think it's wrong thinking. So my wife is a very hardworking wife and mother at home. So I think you men should be thinking, I want a career so that I can earn enough money to support my wife and children. She does not have to work outside the home. She works in the home. She doesn't have to work outside the home. So I, I think you should be thinking that way. And if you can financially support, if it seems that that's going to be a reality, uh, there was a man, this has happened more than once, but I can think of one man in our church. He was in his third year of university, four-year program. He was in his third year. His future wife was in her, he was in his third year, she was in her second year. And they got married before he graduated after four years. She then finished her university studies after they got married. They believed that was wise. So my, my point is there's an illustration of somebody who got married before they finished their university studies. It can be done if you're not being financially irresponsible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah uh, the, uh, there's more questions. Are, there's uh, more questions around this finding. Uh, somebody says here, we are a generation characterized by unrealistic expectations. In your counseling of young people, what are some, some off, or some, or maybe some often unrealistic expectations 
Yeah. I think the, I think the, the point is there are people have unrealistic expectations. Uh, what are some unrealistic expectations that both men and women have that you usually counsel people away from? Well, you should realize you're, you're dating a sinner. And you, you, if you're a Christian, you already know that. But you should be realistic and realize that this man or this woman is going to sin against you in your dating process and certainly after you get married and this man or this woman will at times let you down disappoint you and you can't allow that to just crush you and say oh why did I ever get married you know the fact is is you're both sinners and if you're Christians you're sinners redeemed by the grace of God but you still will sin and so you have to have realistic expectations and remember in dating as well as in marriage you're sinners, you will sin against each other. You will let each other down. You'll cause heartache at times uh, towards one another. You, but that's where the blood of Jesus Christ and the love and grace of Jesus Christ heals and then strengthens marriages. I don't, I'm not yeah, sure if that's addressing the question though. Maybe uh, looks, I mean, I think some of the brothers have pretty high standards about looks when they themselves aren't above its five. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, See, I was, I was more noble. I wasn't thinking along those lines. Yes, 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 you were. Well, no, I, I know these people, you see. <laughs> um, so some of the brothers here are, are perhaps watch too much uh, have been captured by the world's standard of beauty and are not listening to Proverbs and says beauty is vain and charm yeah. is deceitful but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Yeah, amen. Yeah. I, think, <laughs> I, think, I, I think my wife is beautiful. My wife, my wife actually says I'm gorgeous. Yeah, I think she, she, she just loves you. She needs, she, does, she needs glasses, you know. So, but, but at the same time, you know, my wife and I have talked honestly about this. You know, we, we tease each other. I do think she's beautiful, but she would never have been a model on magazines. And she wouldn't have wanted to be a model on magazines. The reality is... 99.9% .9 of us are just ordinary looking men and women. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the wrong statistic, but you get the point. So, beauty is vain, it is fleeting, it does pass away, and so is handsomeness. Yeah. It, it's vain, it's fleeting away. And no matter how hard you try to keep in physical uh, fitness shape, which you should, and when I go on trips like this, I'm reminded of the fact that when I get home, I have to start eating less again and, and doing more exercising. But, but the fact is, the body changes, it decays. Mm. It's the reality of it. Sin, sin in the world, fallen world. So I, I think you need to be realistic about yourself. To be sober, the Bible says we're to be sober, which of course means don't get drunk, don't use drugs and that kind of sin. But to be sober means to be in touch with truth and reality about everything, including yourself. And, and if you are beautiful as a woman, it's not pride to say the Lord has given me a beautiful face. 
In the scriptures, Tamar, one of David's daughters, King David's daughter, Tamar or Tamar, however you want to pronounce it, it says she was beautiful. It also says David was handsome. It says Joseph was very handsome. That's why Potiphar's wife was so attracted to Joseph. He was very handsome. So to say, well, I'm not really handsome. I mean, that's not speaking truth. But you shouldn't be proud about it. What do you have that you have not received? So Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And if you've received it, why do you act as though you didn't receive it? In other words, whatever you have, it's a gift from God. So if you have good looks, it's because God made you good looking. You shouldn't be proud about it. Be sober about it. But the majority of us are just ordinary looking. And what really matters is the spiritual life of that man or woman. What I love about my wife is her godliness. I, I love her beauty, I love her physically, but I love her personality, I love her spiritual mindedness. That's what's most important, the heart of that man. Is he spiritually mature? Is he desiring to be like Jesus Christ in his heart and his life? And the same for the woman. Yeah. And of course, you wouldn't, you wouldn't counsel somebody who feels just com completely unattractive to this potential suitor to get married just because the person is godly. You'd say there has to be some kind of physical attraction, emotional connection. That there, there has to be that. It's not entirely evil. It's just this is this is more weight, weightier. Right. It's yeah. You ha uh, yeah. It's not true that you take a Christian unmarried man, Christian unmarried woman, put them together and they can have a wonderful, happy marriage. That's just not true. Because it ignores the reality of a fallen world, it ignores the reality of remaining sin, it ignores the reality of what we call chemistry. I, I think that is a reality. And I dated, in a godly way, a number of women before I dated the woman who's now my wife. Casanova. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a godly way. <laughs> so, and one of these, one of these women, she's still in the church and she's married, happily married. Uh, her name is Carol. So I dated her three times. On the third date, I said, this is absolute torture for me. Because it, I'm just being honest here. I mean, not that I would be dishonest, but... And in, in, in dating her those three times, to have a conversation with she was a godly woman, she is a godly woman. To have a conversation with her, I felt like I was pulling teeth. I don't know if you use that expression yeah, here. Just it was, on the wall. Oh, it's just so hard. I thought this is so I said after the third date, I gotta tell Carol, Carol, you know, this is not working. And I did, and then when I told her that, you know, face to face in the church, uh, after a prayer meeting night. She smiled. She said, well, Jeff, I was planning to tell you the exact same thing. <laughs> so she felt it was torture with me, you know. And so, you know, that, that kind of thing happens. There was, it wasn't happening. There was yeah. no chemistry there. Yeah. R regarding singleness, uh, you mentioned that in our singleness, we should be content because we have already been made complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does one who feels to who, who I think who, who feels content in their singleness deal with the external societal 
and even those who are older in the church is precious to Mary, leading one to discontentment. How does one deal with the, with the church, with the Pastor Smiths of the world who are encouraging them <laughs> to get married, but they feel content, and now that, that creates a discontentment? Yeah, I think, I think what you need to do is you need to first understand that those brothers and sisters in the church who are probably married men and women who are trying to encourage you to be married and they're praying for you and what about this young lady or what about that young man or whatever, you know, you need to realize they do this out of love. They're really not trying to pressure you. You may feel the pressure, but they're not trying to pressure you. And, you know, they're not trying to make you discontent either. In love, they would like to see you married. But I think what you can do in that case, if it, if it makes you feel discontent, you could say to that, uh, because I think it's often a married woman with an unmarried woman. It seems to me that that's often the case. I may be wrong, but... So if it's a married woman, and you're the unmarried woman, and she's saying this to you, and she's done it once, twice, three times, four times, five times, over the course of some months, to then speak to her and say, you know, dear sister so-and-so, I know you mean well, and I would just ask that you pray privately for me, because when you say these things to me, I then battle with discontentment, and I want to be content. I think that that would cause that person initially feel a little, uh, which, you know, not hurt, but realizing, oh boy, I didn't mean to make that sister who's unmarried feel discontent. But I think you need to communicate so that that pressure doesn't keep coming upon you from that woman or that woman or from a man because yeah. men could do that too. Yeah. Um, oh, I missed it. Um, we're always talking about singles serving families. When and how should married people serve singles in the church? Um, very good question. Uh, married men and women can have a Bible study in their home for the singles. Mm -hmm. Married men and women, I think, should regularly... Okay, I'm speaking from my context, so I'm assuming it happens here in South Africa. My wife and I regularly invite single men and women, not for the purpose of matchmaking. I'm not saying it's wrong to try to matchmake in a good way, but not for that purpose, but just we invite single men and women into our home. Many times we'll invite single men and women into our home for a dinner, for fellowship, on a Friday night, a Saturday, and we also invite some married couples as well. We, we do that so that we can see how they're doing spiritually, practically speaking. And it's not usually a large crowd because then you can't have the interaction you would like, but we do that regularly. That's what married men and women in the church here at Heritage can do and, and probably are doing, but I, I think that's one way. You can also organize, I like doing this, work projects for single men at my home where you come and help me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good at certain things, but, you know, but, it, but seriously, I've, I've even done that. And I've told the men up front, you know, can you guys come over and help me? I've got this project, you know, and then you, you're doing something together and you have fellowship together as well. Yeah. So, so there is an imperative on the, on the families in the church to be thinking 
and considering specific ways to help the singles. I would even suggest just in, in our context, uh, families who have a space in their car to consider how they can help bring some people to church. Mm. Um, uh, because we're so spread out, some people, just, uh, families just considering that. And also the deacons are always uh, encouraging the church to invite uh, a number of our students over right. to their homes right. for different things, and just to invite them to get to know them. Right. Um, and so there's, there's many different things that, uh, that perhaps we should be using our sanctified uh, imagination on how we can enrich, encourage, um, and give support to practically, even in some young ladies trying to choose a car to buy um, as they are working and they're trying to, they're trying to figure out which car to buy and they want to. You know, we, have, we had one young, one young lady recently and she was helped by uh, uh, another young man, another married man in the church who helped her go and he came with her to go see, to view the car, to figure out the right things, etc. So there's a number of things that we should be doing, I would say, as well um, in the church. Yeah, let me just add this. Married women can also teach, and I don't know, how, again, how it works with the single women here, but married women who have learned how to cook can invite single women into their home. My wife does this. She invites, as she gets to know the different single women, she finds out this single woman grew up in a home where her mother didn't teach her how to cook. Her mother was not a Christian. And so she, she invites two or three women over on a Saturday, and tells them, look, you want to learn how to cook? And they usually do. So come over and she's teaching them how to cook. Yeah. And uh, so that's another practical thing you can do. Yeah. This is the final one. We have a number more uh, questions around this and I think we'll see if we can cover them in the, in the, in the afternoon Q&A session. But a lot of them will actually be covered tomorrow morning at Bible Hour when we discuss courtship as a community project. So do come to that if, you're, if, I, if you do not get your questions specifically answered here. But this one I think is important, Pastor Smith, and perhaps we'll just end on this one. This is a person who's asking about um, uh, marrying someone who's not a virgin. So you can imagine the, the, the situation here. Uh, 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 this person says, pastorally, what are some of the challenges that will be faced by a couple where one is a virgin and the other is not? I've been told that it creates problems in marriage. And I think that the image that you perhaps want to have in your head about this is, here's a, a couple, here's a, perhaps a young man or a young woman, they've, by God's grace, been chased throughout in their lives, and then they became, and then they're now looking for married, to, to be married. But then perhaps the, the suitor, or the suitor that they're considering, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, in their past life, while they were an unbeliever, they might have sinned sexually. Um, and they might have even fallen, you know, as a young Christian, sexually. But they've, you know, they've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been redeemed. And, and now they're looking to get married and live out the realities that we're discussing this, in this conference. How would, you, how would you counsel the person, the other person, the one who's perhaps been chased, um, uh, who, who has not, uh, who, who's now considering somebody who has that sexual history? I would say as a general rule, again, there can be exceptions, but when I, as a pastor, become aware of the fact, here's a man and a woman, and either the man or the woman, but only one of them has been sexually impure. They've had actual sexual relations uh, 
prior to that point in time, whether they fell as a Christian or not. I mean, usually it's they were not yet Christians. But whether the man or the woman, it doesn't matter. But one of them is chaste and the other one's not. When I find that out from one of them, you, and I don't usually find it out when they're together with me initially, which is fine. Um, I get appropriate facts and usually, generally, I say, well, this person who it seems you're going to get engaged and get married to, they need to know, not the details, but they need to know that you're not a virgin. Generally, I think that that's helpful. How is that disclosed? Well, either in my presence or sometimes the parents of the individual may, one situation that happened with me, the man was not a virgin, a member of the church. It happened before he became a Christian. The woman was a virgin, a member of the church. Her parents were members of the church as well. When this man told me this and we discussed this, he agreed he wanted her to know this from his past. Not the details. But we decided, as we talked, that it would be good for him to reveal this to her, not in my presence, but in the presence of her Christian father and mother. So then I said to this man, this young man, either you speak to the parents first, or I will, whichever you would like. He wanted to speak to the Christian parents privately, so they were aware of what was going to happen. And so that happened, so that there was that knowledge, and then moving forward into the marriage, there wasn't... Um, that cloud. So that's what I would generally do. And then that man needed to understand he must not think of his past sexual experiences now with his wife when he marries her. That's easily said, not always easily done, but you have to discard and ask God to just blot it all out as best as possible from your mind and heart in your marriage and think biblically about sexual relations in marriage. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, brother. I think um, I think let's uh, break for tea. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's uh, let's break for tea now. We will start our our session in fi next session in 15 minutes. Let's uh, break for tea and a bit of a break.